I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 20 today. In fact, we are concluding our exposition of James. We began this study uh, back in September, and we are finishing up our time in James this morning, uh, looking ahead uh, to the coming weeks as we celebrate Advent and uh, all that uh, Christmas means for us as Christians. And we'll be looking specifically the next four weeks in the Gospel of Luke uh, as some of the songs there recorded uh, in the early chapters of Luke's Gospel. Uh, today, we're going to now turn our attention, though, to James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I want to read down to verse 20, the remaining verses of this, of this book. So let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's Word. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let, him, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it for our instruction and for our good. Father, as we conclude our time now in this very practical, helpful book, a book of wisdom, God, would you give us understanding even this morning of the importance of relationships and the the importance of prayer and the importance of living out lives in a community such as this. So Father, now would you instruct our hearts? Would you make us more like Christ? We pray this in his name, amen. You may be seated. One of the biggest lies told is that you can live the Christian life on your own. You've heard it said before, maybe you've said it in times past. Well, I don't need the church to be a Christian. I can be a Christian and do just fine on my own. One of the things that it's abundantly clear when you read God's word is that God never intended for us to live outside of relationship. Relationship with him, relationship with each other. And here in the final verses of James chapter five, it's, it's really what I would summarize is, is James calling for the believers that he's writing to and now by the Holy Spirit writing to us, he's calling for believers to not forget the importance of the relationships that God has ordained and called us to. Remember, he's writing to a very stressed, 
anxious, frightened, discouraged, weary people. As he's writing this, these instructions to a people who had been scattered, namely because of persecution. They had been suffering much. And, and, and here in these final verses, it's as if James is saying, listen, don't forget about these very important relationships. As you suffer, as you go through what you're going through, don't forget about this, this vital relationship that you have with God and this relationship that he has ordained for you to live in community with other believers. You know, we've been instructed in many ways throughout this, this letter. Very practical book, chapter one, we're reminded of the need for wisdom. Wisdom is not just intellectual assent, wisdom is knowledge applied. James is reminding us for this very need and then he really spends the rest of the time fleshing out what wisdom looks like as we pray for it. In, 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 in the chapter one, into chapter two, he, he calls for the believers to live out their lives in a very active faith, a faith that is not dead, a faith that is marked, characterized by works. Later, he, he reminds us, he reminds us of the damaging nature of worldliness, whether worldliness in our speech or in our selfish hearts in the pursuit of riches. Last week, we were reminded that God indeed is a God of justice and how we are to patiently anticipate his coming, even as we have to endure hardship. And now in his closing remarks here in verses 13 through 20, he calls us to pursue the most important relationships we've been given, namely our relationship with God and our dependence upon our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, it's important to remember the context because this is not being written to, to a group of prosperous, wealthy believers. These are suffering brothers and sisters. They were under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, and he wanted them to be reminded where their true hope rested and where they should turn. So this morning, as we conclude the book of James, I want us to consider these two critical relationships the Lord calls us to, that we are called to in this life as we wait upon our great God and Savior, namely our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Let's look at them together. These are the two points, pretty simple this morning. We're going to hang our hats on these two um, critical relations. Number one, the Christian life is to be a life lived out in communion with God. The Christian life is to be a life that's lived in relationship, in communion with God. Verse 13, notice what he says here. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It's a very simple verse, very, very straightforward verse. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing. Notice what James has done though. James has identified two extremes of human emotion and experience, hasn't he? Suffering and happiness, difficulty and cheerfulness. And he concludes that both require, in essence, the same response, doesn't he? If you're suffering, look to God in prayer. If you're cheerful, look to God in praise. So here, James, it's as if he's looking at these two bookends of our 
life experience, suffering and happiness. And he says on both ends, and I would conclude implied in this is everywhere in between, we are to look to God. We're to trust in him. We're to, we're to call upon him. You think about this, many things, I mean, James is writing this to suffering believers. Many things could have been said in his concluding remarks, right? Many practical suggestions could have been made. He's certainly given us a, uh, a wealth of those throughout his letter. But James, as he concludes, he simply says, pray, sing praise, look to God. And this is a good word for us because here we were reminded of the centrality that God should be in our lives, both in the good and in the bad. Pastor Kent Hughes once said this, he said, his commands, God's commands here are a congenial attack on the universal human tendency during trouble to get angry or indulge in self-pity or complain. Or on the other hand, when one is untroubled and happy to forget God. Let's think about these two experiences for a moment. Let the suffering pray. Now we could summarize the first part of verse 13. Let the suffering pray. Is anyone among you suffering, he says, let him pray. Here the term for suffering is, is a general term that denotes the experience of a variety of human afflictions. It's, it's not a specific term, meaning a specific type of suffering. It's a general type of, uh, it's a general term applied to a variety of sufferings that we might experience. And so he's just simply saying, listen, if you're suffering, define suffering, for yourself, you should pray. Again, these believers were under much distress, persecution and oppression. You know, in verse seven, James called upon them to be patient. Now he expands upon that and says, pray. As you await the coming of our great Lord and Savior, be patient. But as you suffer, you should also pray. You should seek the Lord. You should be reminded of, of the, the, the necessity of God being the central part of your life, being the foundation of what you are about. Notice this is not necessarily a prayer for the suffering to end. He just says, pray. He doesn't say, if anyone among you is suffering, pray so that your suffering will end. In fact, it's a call to seek God for spiritual strength. When you begin to look at the context, the greater context is he calls them to patience. As in chapter one, he calls them to count it all joy when they face trials of many kinds. He's calling them to pray, to patiently endure and to pray for strength and endurance in the midst of this trial, the very thing we need most. Think about it. It's during, it's during the trial it's during those moments of stress and anxiety and pressure that we're often most tempted to blame God, to grow bitter, or to simply give up. If our prayers are deliverance only kind of prayers, then should it surprise us that we give up on God pretty fast? If we think all that prayer is meant to be is God get me out of this, 
God, deliver me from this stress, from this trial, from this temptation, from this oppression. If we think that prayer is just that genie in a lamp kind of thing that God gives us for what, what we want, then we're gonna find ourselves bailing on God quite quickly. You see, trouble in our lives can often give rise to rebellion against God. All of us have been there. All of us, when we have been backs against the wall, when we've been pressed in from every direction, when we are enduring hardship, it's a crisis of faith in many times. We start asking those why questions and God, if you were really good, you wouldn't do this. Think about those times when you've suffered and maybe an in, endured a season of suffering in your life and, and the very last thing you want to do is pray. How many of you have been there before? You've, you've struggled for such a long time. The, the last thing you wanna do is call upon God. I mean, where has he been all along? Suffering is a breeding ground for rebellion, but it can also be a breeding ground of righteousness if we seek God, understanding him as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. If we are reminded of what James says, that it's in the midst of these various trials that God tests us, that he strengthens us, and that he makes us perfect and complete. anyone among you suffering, James writes, let him pray. And friends, sometimes there will be those moments when you don't know what to pray. Well, praise God, we have one who intercedes for us. It's the spirit that intercedes. When we don't know what to pray, the spirit does. Friends, the last thing, the last thing we should do when we're going through a difficult season is to avoid God to neglect him, as we're called to run to him, to realize that he is sovereign and that he has all things working together for your good, even if you don't understand it, even if it doesn't feel good, even if it doesn't seem good, even if your calculations and, and all of those logical things that you've lined up to figure things out don't seem to make sense. Friends, we can trust him. So let the suffering pray. I don't know if you're here today and maybe you, you've been going through a season of suffering. Are you praying? I know this sounds so simple, doesn't it? But it's most neglected. Are you praying? Are you seeking God? Are you expressing your trust and dependence upon him? Because friends, that's what prayer truly is. Yes, we bring him our request and we bring him our desires and we ask of him and he gives to us generously. But prayer is so much more than that. It's often just a, a means for us to express our dependence upon God and to, to celebrate who he is in the midst of what's going on. Let the suffering pray, and then second, let the cheerful rejoice. On the other end of the spectrum, we are also called to seek God. Is anyone cheerful? He says, let him sing praise. 
Sing praise is, is tied very closely here to prayer and, and we can just kind of encapsulate it into one overall theme of, of seeking God and, and com- having that communion with God, whether it's through prayer or through praise, those are, both are very closely knit together in this case. Think about that. It's in the times of ease and comfort and affluence that we need to be most careful it's just as the one who suffers can grow bitter towards God, the one without trouble can forget God. John Calvin once put it this way. He said, there is no time in which God does not invite himself to us. Not a beautiful thought. There's no time in which God does not invite himself to us. God is open, there's an open invitation to, to enjoy the blessings and presence of God, whether through the times of, of cheerfulness or the times of suffering, God is calling us to enjoy him, to trust in him. Because I think that many times we, when, we, when we're, we're going through those seasons of life where we don't feel a lot of trouble, we don't feel trouble necessarily, we don't feel that pressure or suffering or anxiety or tension in our lives. Some of you are thinking, well, I wish those were more common than not, right? Well, there are those moments where we, we don't necessarily have uh, suffering as the forefront thought of our experience. And maybe we're going through a season, small as it may be, of, of cheerfulness and joy and happiness and understanding uh, just the blessings of, of living even in an affluent society. Friends, it's in those times that, that we are often tempted to forget God. We don't, we don't sense such a need for him when we're enjoying these things. We have to be careful with that. Friends, again, whether you're going through a hard time or happy times, God is, called, God is calling upon us to seek him. He is our provider and he is our sustainer. We are dependent upon him for all things. And we should go to him in every circumstance, whether you're suffering or whether you're cheerful. Friends, if you're cheerful today, I pray that you are. Certainly we could even go into a sermon series of, of how Christians should always have joy even in the midst of suffering, this, this um, contentment, this confidence in God that we know that he is good and that he does good and that we can trust him. But whether you're suffering or whether you're cheerful, whether you're going through that range of human experience or emotion, the, the response is the same. We're to seek God. We're to enjoy that fellowship, that communion with him. All of that's in verse 13. You're thinking we got a long way to go to get to verse 20, right? Point two covers verses 14 through 20, just to ease your conscience. So the Christian life is to be lived in communion with God. Okay? Let's look at number two. Christian life is to be lived out in community. Christian life is to be lived out in community. Verses 14 through 20, we see uh, an emphasis, especially in verses 14 through 18 on prayer, seeking the elders of the church and then praying for one another. And then in verses 19 and 20, pursuing the wayward. We're gonna unpack this a minute, but I want you to notice a repeated phrase in these remaining verses that I believe are quite instructive. Three times in verses 13 through 13 and 14, we read, is anyone among you? Is anyone among you? And then down in verse 19, it says, if, if anyone among you, that, that among you is, is a, should be an indicator for us of, listen, there's a 
group of people, right? You wouldn't just speak to uh, uh, one person and say, Mike, you know, Mike, is anyone among you? I'm talking to you direct. No, you, you, if you say among you, you're assuming a, a larger presence of people, right? Well, that's James's uh, instruction here. He's, he says, is anyone among you? James is not writing a general letter for Christians to read in isolated individualism. He's writing to a community of Christians. Now listen, many times we read the Bible wrongly. What I mean by that is that a lot of times we'll open the Bible and we're reading it as if God inspired it directly to us as an individual. And certainly he has written it to impact us as individuals. But we have to remember that, that many of the context in which we find in the scripture is being written to communities of Christians to churches or even Christians, even if they're scattered through, through persecution, he's writing with the greater community in mind. So when we read our Bibles, yes, we want to, to read them for personal application, but much of that personal application is fleshed out in the context of a community of Christians we call churches. Verses 14 and following, I believe we see a great snapshot it's like James takes a picture of how a church, how church community should be lived out, even when, when believers are, are scattered because of persecution. You see the elders are called upon to, to pray. Believers are praying for one another and confessing sin to one another. You see straying believers pursued by others in the body. It's a great picture of how the church should live. It's a great reminder that, that a a believing gospel-centered community is not just a good idea, it's an absolute necessity. So let's unpack this a bit. Let's look at these, these let's, let's look into the picture a little bit more. Let's, let's see how this Christian community is, is being lived out. Number one, uh, Christian community is a community that calls upon its elders. Look at verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So here, expanding on this theme of prayer, we find in verse 13, James now says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Several things here. James reminds us, one, of the biblical office of elder. Even in a, even in a single church here, the, the, the word elder is used in its plural form. So we see the plurality of elders in a single local church. And he shows that the elders here are responsible for the care of the sheep, even at their most trying of times. Again, the mention of elders and the church highlights that God's plan was for believers to live in a community together we call churches. So even here, even though it may not be his immediate point of there shall be churches, he's assuming that that's the case as he's talking about elders of the church to suffering believers and how all of this, this exists in community together. Think about this call upon the elders for a moment. Most likely this request is made in the context of a very grave and serious illness. Not necessarily everything that pops up, but a very serious moment. So the elders are called upon, to, called upon, they pray over the sick as they anoint them with oil. Now this passage has been taken and, 
and used in various contexts for the support of many different things. For example, I know the Catholic Church often used this text to support their idea of last rites or extreme unction. But this is not about last rites at all. The person here doesn't die. They actually are healed. So it's pretty important to see that. And what about the oil? I mean, the word oil isn't necessarily a user, but this anointing, anointing him with oil there in verse 14, verse, uh, the second part of verse 14. What about the oil? And this should really get all you essential oil people excited. It's in the Bible. <laughs> well, it's true that oil was used for medicinal purposes in this day and still today, but that's not likely the point of the reference here of oil. So sorry, it's not a call for the elders to go get their bottle of doTERRA lavender and come and see this person's life radically changed. When a person was anointed with oil in the Bible, it was usually with the purpose of consecrating or setting them apart for special attention or service. So they hear the, the, the focus is not the oil, the focus is the prayer, the prayer of faith. And verse 15 says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. I have to be honest, that, that makes this verse harder to preach. It would have been much more helpful had the Holy Spirit decided to inspire this verse by saying the prayer of faith might make the one who is sick well. The word might and will are very different in their meanings, but it says will. So is this like a guaranteed response? If we do all of this formulaic thing here, anoint and pray, call upon the elders, is it guaranteed? Because we know many examples where even when elders are called upon and anointing happens, someone isn't delivered, someone isn't healed. So if the elders are called upon and nothing happens, does that mean we got a bad crop of elders? Well, maybe. Friends, I do think it's, it's important that we, that we see this verse because I think what happens is, is we've, as evangelicals and, and Bible-believing Christians, I think we often have allowed the extreme movements of, uh, the, the extreme charismatic movements, that, that prosperity gospel, the health wealth gospel, to, to so uh, poison the water, if you will, that, that, it, that it makes us nervous. These kinds of verses make us, make us nervous because of the abuse of them. We have to be reminded that these are verses certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit and instructive. See, the health wealth gospel would teach that if people aren't, aren't delivered from their sickness, it's because they don't have enough faith. I can tell you many stories that I've heard through the years where a person's life has been destroyed because they were told that they were not delivered because they didn't have enough faith. Friends, that's not at all what this is talking about. We're certainly called upon to pray with the confident expectation that God will hear and that he will answer our prayers. But sometimes, sometimes God does not give what's called the gift of faith. Gift of faith is where the certainty of God's will is known in a particular situation. I know we could discuss this and maybe debate it on the side. I believe in the gift of faith. I believe that God gives gifts of faith to people at particular times uh, to, to embrace the certainty of a situation. I think it's Perhaps rare, I think it does happen. But here, I, I think this is part and parcel of what's going on, that we need to understand that sometimes God gives the gift of faith in this context to the elders to know the certainty of a situation. They're gathered, they pray, and a healing takes place. 
Again, I think the prosperity gospel and extreme abuses in the charismatic churches have caused too many of us to be leery of teachings like this when they're in fact biblical. So you, as Christians, we need to use God-given, Holy Spirit-led discernment about the truth of Scripture. I think the beautiful picture that we see here is believers reaching out to their elders in a time of need. The elders coming around such a person in this time of need and anointing them, setting them apart for a particular work of God and praying over them, knowing that, that God will indeed hear and answer our prayers. The second aspect, a second picture of this biblical community is it, it's a community that looks to one another. Now, I know uh, those of you remember, those of you who are here, I know several of you are new, but a year or so ago, we did a series on the one another's. We looked at a variety of the one another commands in the Bible. Very instructive, very helpful time as we think about our responsibility as Christians to each other. We, we have a responsibility. Your responsibility as a believer, and particularly as a member of this church, if you're a member of this church, is not just to show up on Sunday, check the box, and go home. That's not your responsibility. We hope that you do come and gather with us on Sundays. We, we, we want you to, to be here. We want you to sing God's praise, to hear God's word, to, to be instructed even in our equipped times. Very beneficial, but... But when we think about membership here in a local church, it's, it's highlighting the responsibility that we have to each other. Not just, not just a responsibility to, to show up at an event or to come to a particular place, but the, the responsibility that we have together as Christians. We need to remember that that is indeed what the Bible calls us to. And so here we see the importance of a Christian community lived out with two of the one another's. Verse 15. We see uh, he's, he's continuing there as he talks about the prayer of the elders. He says the prayer of faith will save and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, think about this. This kind of activity, confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another cannot take place unless you're together. I mean, you can't do this in a chat room, right? Virtual. You, you can't do this in some kind of other means. You, you, you must be together for this to happen. Relationships must be building for this to happen. Friends, this is a great reminder of the grace of mutual accountability in the life of the Christian. Sin will often thrive in fact, it does, not just often, it does. Sin thrives in isolation. When you isolate yourself, when you are detached from the greater body, when you are off on your own, when you're seeking to, to do your own thing, that's where sin thrives. But when you're able to expose it to God and to others, there's much good that can take place for your own soul, for the edification of the church, and for the glory of God. Think about this. God has placed us in a community to help us fight sin. Have you ever thought about that? The, the church, one of the functions and responsibilities of the church, the, one of the roles that it plays in your life is to help you fight sin. Not fight each other, right? To help you fight against sin and fight against the, the struggles of your own soul and flesh. He's placed us in this community to help us fight against sin and to pursue righteousness. Make use of that. 
Make use of that kind of understanding that this community allows. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, we're told. Can't happen in a casual approach to church life. If you're not pursuing others, or you're, you're not willing to be pursued, then you're gonna miss this great benefit and blessing that God has ordained for the good of his people. And I just ask you, who in this church knows you well? If you've only been here two weeks, you get a pass. <laughs> who in this church knows you well? And who in this church do you know well? And if you say, well, I, I would define well. Well, who knows you at a level where you can share these kinds of burdens, struggles with temptation and sin? And when you've fallen short of God's glory, yes, you're confessing your sin to God, but you're confessing sin to one another as a means of accountability and strength and help. Who in this church do you know well enough to do that with? And if, if you can't come up with a list or even one person, then let me just encourage you, friends, invest in each other's lives. And you say, well, it's, it, we can come up with a million excuses. Well, people aren't investing in me and, and I, my schedule's kind of busy. Lay all those aside, friends. Just, just the more you're with Christians, the more relationships are gonna, gonna happen. I'm not just saying it's always gonna happen easy. For some people, it's easy. For me, it's not. I'm an introvert by nature, right? You say, well, how'd you end up being a preacher? I have no idea, except God, God made it happen. Uh, you know, and so I don't naturally move towards people. I don't naturally open up my life to people, but I know that when I've done that, and when I do do that, it's a means of God's grace to my own soul. And so some people just, they're just, they're like an open book. They walk around, you know, for everybody to know. I don't necessarily recommend that, but, but if, you're, if you're pursuing people, and if you're willing to be pursued, and so I know that there's always gonna be breakdowns in the church. We're not a perfect church. There's gonna be things that, that, that churches you know, struggle with, with doing that. There are gonna be individuals that thrive at this in the church. There are gonna be some individuals in the church that struggle with this. Friend, the point is, is that being willing to be in each other's lives, building those relationships so that you're able to, to speak into each other's lives, confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another. And here in this case, that, that you may be healed. Friends, don't hide from the gracious gift of Christian community. It might be hard, but it's necessary. And then he finishes his instruction on prayer by pointing to the Old Testament example of Elijah. And when this dude prayed, crazy things happened. And you think, well, he was an Old Testament prophet. Well, actually, James wants to clarify the record here. A man with a nature like ours. You might want to put him up on this pedestal, but friends, he was a sinner just like you. He, he struggled with human depravity. Elijah was a man who didn't have it all together, and he prayed, he sought God, and, and God moved and worked through his prayers. So don't think you have to have some kind of um, extraordinary position or extraordinary calling or extraordinary whatever, or, or that your faith has to be at a certain level for God to work. No, he, he was just like us. He had a nature like ours. He was a sinner that sought the face of God. A community that looks to one another and a community that pursues the wayward. So you have 
community that calls upon its elders, the relationship of elders and church. You have um, uh, a community that pursues one another, and all of that understood in this context is within the context of prayer, but prayer doesn't happen without relationship, right? Now, we see a community that pursues the wayward. It seems kind of odd to end verse or the book of James in this way. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I think it's so odd when you understand the impact of sin, the damage that it does. You know, he could have put a nice little closing on it, wrapped the, you know, nice red bow and, and closed it out. But I think the seriousness of sin, the, the, the warning here that we're, he just kind of leaves it. <laughs> Don't forget about the impact that sin has in the community. And when someone strays, go after them. This is a critical aspect of being part of a Christian community and it can serve as a lifeline against sin in our lives. Here's the reality. Sometimes we can be so overwhelmed with life Sometimes we can be so overwhelmed with sin. Sometimes we can be led astray by false teachers. We just bail. We bail on God, we bail on the church, bail on the truth. In this verse, it says the person that, that has wandered from the truth. That may or may not mean a physical wandering. They may be physically present, but spiritually gone. It may mean that they're both spiritually and physically gone. The point is, this is a person that has been taken captive by error, by false teachers, or, or they're, they're moving away from the truth. And we need to pursue them. Friends, this happens. This happens too often. Some of the very people you thought would never go astray will go astray. Galatians 5 verse 7, Paul, he's writing to a relatively new church. And he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you? Things were good. You got the gospel right. And now you've added all of this crazy stuff to it. You were running well. Who hindered you? Friends, there's not a person in this room. If this is the only thing you hear all morning, just hear this. There's not a person in this room that isn't capable of bailing on the truth and forsaking God. Not a person in this room. We are all prone to wonder. And there's a bit of warning here for all of us. I think it's another reason that gathering with believers in community around the teaching of God's word is critical. It helps protect us from wandering away. And friends, when someone does wander away we aren't called upon just to sit back and say, well, I hope they figure things out. Shame on them. No, we're called to pursue them. In fact, we were, again, to look at the book of Galatians in chapter six, verse one, Paul there says, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore. 
He doesn't say should think about it, should pray long about it. You should pray about it and you should think about it, but he doesn't give it as an option. He, he should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual. So he's addressing the, the mature believers here and saying, listen, if one sins, if one goes astray, if one bails on the truth, go after them so that they can be restored. But then notice what he says. But keep watch, lest you too be tempted. You, the spiritual. That's why I said earlier, there's not a person in this room that isn't capable of, of falling astray. Friends, pursuing the wayward might seem harsh at times. It might be awkward. It will be awkward. And it will be difficult. But it's the most loving thing that we can do for the good of their own soul, for the testimony of the church, and for the glory of God. Pursuing the wayward. In verse 20, as, as, as we see there, seeing them restored, that's, that's our aim, right? If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Friends, that's what it's about. And being restored to God and being restored to their community, saving them from death. Friends, our love for one another should compel us to help others enjoy God's forgiveness. Think about that. Let me say that again. Our love for one another should compel us to help others enjoy God's forgiveness. You say, well, what if they don't return? Well, James doesn't say this and Paul doesn't say this. It, it doesn't say pursue them if there's um, a high likelihood that they'll return. He says, pursue them, seek to restore them. And if in the end they prove that they're not interested in repentance and then all the way to the end of their lives, then they would prove that their faith maybe was never genuine to begin with. We could look at other passages that deal with that, but that shouldn't be our concern. Our, our concern should be that they've gone, we need to go after them in gentleness and love and humility. You know, as I thought about this, I thought about how churches love to count, love to count things. I grew up in church where they have the number of Sunday school on the board so we could just boast about ourselves and look how good we are. Oh, we didn't do so well this week. It's like sanctification rides on the Sunday school chart, right? We love to count things. How many members do you have at your church? You ought to go to pastor's meetings. It gets really interesting. Well, how many members do you have? Well, how many members do you have? I don't know if I should tell you or not. Um, how many baptisms have you had this year? How many of this and how many of that? What's your budget? How much, you know, what's your offerings looking like? These are all important things. I'm not trying to, to belittle that. Numbers do tell a story and they are important. They serve a purpose in the life of the church. But I wonder, I wonder how many churches, including our own, have a running tally on the wayward. I wonder how many of those who have maybe left our fellowship or are on the verge of just falling astray and falling away. I wonder if there's a number of those souls that we keep track of. Something to consider. Friends, as we come to a conclusion of this great book, I couldn't think of, I'm not the Holy Spirit definitely, but the Holy Spirit inspired James to write this, but what better way to be reminded of the importance of our relationship with God, to seek him in, in all circumstances, in every, in every time. 
to have this great communion with him and oh, how we need him. We need God, but, but also the gift that he's given us of one another, flawed as we are, but redeemed by the grace of God. Because we need to examine our prayer life and we need to also check on our body life as well. It's like we're a ship steaming ahead. We're on a ship steaming ahead in this violent storm with this island of paradise awaiting us. But it's choppy now. And as we're aboard that ship, it's just being reminded that we're called to look to the captain knowing that that captain knows exactly how to get us there. And that we need our fellow shipmates to make sure that we don't fall overboard in the meantime. Friends, we need God and we need one another. Let's pursue these absolutely essential relationships that God has ordained for our good and for his glory. Praise God that we are not left alone in this world. Praise God that we're not left alone to figure things out. Let us be grateful for all that we have in Christ. Relationship with God. And let us be thankful for the relationship we have with one another. And let us make use of the very gifts that he's given us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your instruction and for the reminder that you've given us here. Father, we know that we need you. There's no question. Sometimes we might find ourselves not feeling that, not expressing that. But Lord, when we are honest before you, Lord, there's no question that we need you. Whether we're suffering, whether we're cheerful or anywhere in between, Father, we need you. God, would you help us? Would you help us pray? Would you help us sing praise? Would you help us to understand you and to seek you and to depend upon you and to cry out to you and to trust you? And Father, forgive us for when we haven't, when we've grown bitter, when we've, when we've grown frustrated towards you as if, as if you are to go by our orders. God, would you help us to see you as our, as our God, as our creator, as our sustainer, as our provider. And Lord, even as we go through those times of happiness and those cheerful times, when we are prone to forget you. God, would you forgive us when we have grown negligent of our relationship with you? And Father, as we think about the great gift of the church, great gift of community and prayer, and Father, would you remind us of, of the blessing the church is to be? Sometimes we grow critical of one another and grow critical of of the church, and Lord, indeed, we, we aren't perfect. We aren't perfect. But God, would you help us to see beyond our flaws and to see the necessity of investing in each other's lives in a way that serves our good and your glory. Father, would you just speak to our hearts even now as we wrap this time up, and Lord, we thank you. We thank you for our time that we've been able to spend in James. God, you've instructed us. You've helped us in so many ways. We thank you for that. And Lord, now as we stand in a moment to sing, would you help us to respond in song? Would you help us to respond with obedient and faithful lives, transformed by grace, lived out for your glory? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.